0: Welcome to Upfront About Breast Cancer, What You Don't Know Until You Do, with Dr Charlotte Totman. This is Episode 2 of our 10-part series. For the best listening experience, we recommend you listen from Episode 1. BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. Welcome to Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with Dr. Charlotte Totman, brought to you by the Breast Cancer Network Australia.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kelly Curtin and this is Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with Dr. Charlotte Totman. In episode two, we hear about Charlotte's experience of emotional isolation during her cancer journey, including the feeling of being alone in the intense experience of a cancer diagnosis and treatment, despite being surrounded by loved ones. A reminder that this episode of Upfront About Breast Cancer is an unscripted conversation with Dr. Charlotte. The topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice nor necessarily represent the full spectrum of experience or clinical option. So please exercise self-care when listening as the content may be triggering or upsetting for some. Charlotte, welcome. Hello. This is the tale of two husbands. Which sounds have sort of other. quite whimsical and, and romantic, but <laughs> not really, because we're not talking really. about a cancer diagnosis and how you navigate that for yourself, but also helping navigate it with those closest to you in your life.
2: Yeah, so this is um, an episode that I, I reflected on and thought, isn't it interesting how you can feel emotionally isolated, um, particularly it can be particularly excruciating because when you're surrounded by loved ones, you know, your brain's sort of going, well, I've got all of these people who care about me around me, so, you know, therefore I probably shouldn't feel isolated. Um, it would make sense to feel isolated if you were on a desert island, but you're not. And so your brain's going, well, I've got all these, this support crew around me, I should probably be feeling, you know, well supported, and yet I am feeling so incredibly isolated. And And that absolutely applied to me too. And it was really well reflected in two instances, one with my current husband, Robin, who I've been married to for 25 years, and one in my ex-husband, Peter, who I was married to for six years, and we had three children together. So I guess the um, learning from both of these experiences is it kind of doesn't matter whether you are talking about a relationship, say, with your ex-husband, who you might not necessarily expect to get a lot of you know, emotional support from, perhaps, um, or your current husband, who you might expect to get a whole lot of emotional support from, and, and to be truthful, I do, from Robin. Um, but in each case, I was left feeling very emotionally isolated.
1: Let's talk about your story. Uh, you've had a double mastectomy and eight weeks on, you're still in patient mode. Are you feeling emotionally isolated? What, what was your state of mind?
2: So after I had the surgery, I had a post-op bleed, and then I um, had a seroma, which um, is a a collection of fluid that um, happened sort of across both sides of my chest, and that went on for eight weeks. And so for the first eight weeks after surgery, I was having to go back to my surgeon every two or three days to have it drained. And for women who've had seroma, they'll totally understand how pleasant that is. Um, Not, because they stick you with a big fat needle and drain out the fluid, and... um, it's a it's a way of feeling completely tethered to the um, treatment, surgical kind of um, intervention. You, you you don't really feel like you can start to heal and move on because every two or three days you're back having something um, stuck in you to drain you. So and that you're like,
1: in pain too.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, I was covered in dressings and. I'd had a, as well as the post op bleed, I'd had this weird uh, because they they trust me up with this incredible uh, tape to try and put pressure on my my whole chest to stop the internal bleeding, and I my skin reacted to the to the tape, so when they took the tape off, they took off the skin as well. So my first few weeks after surgery were particularly physically challenging. So we found ourselves at the beginning of October. So, yeah, I had the surgery at the very beginning of August. So it was the very beginning of October, about eight weeks in. And Peter, my first husband, who is biological father to, to our oldest three children, he lives overseas, has done for a really long time, and we're good friends. And to be um, transparent, he gave me permission to tell this story, which does speak to the extent of our friendship, he was back in Adelaide for a visit and as he always does when he's around, he, he comes over and has meals and hangs out with us. So we're all good friends. Anyway, on this particular day, I'm I'm home in the house by myself. It was, you know, an afternoon and he called over to have a cup of tea and say hi. And the other thing that had happened at this time was a really close girlfriend of mine, someone I'd been to school with and and who had visited me six weeks prior and given me her homemade carrot soup, which at that point was still in the freezer. And she'd got pancreatic cancer and died. And so she'd she been diagnosed and died within five weeks. And so Peter arrived coincidentally at just the time that this had all happened. Literally, the, her funeral was about two days after he was coming to visit me. So I was dealing with my own surgery and the post-op sort of mess. And I was also grieving, very, very rawly grieving, um, the death of my friend from pancreatic cancer. So for those people who've had an ex-husband or have an ex-husband or even, you know, any kind of long-standing ex, you probably understand what I'm about to say, which is that... There are patterns, dynamics in relationships that get established over time. And so it became clear when Peter arrived, we fell back into the dynamic of our marriage a long time ago in my 20s. We fell straight back into that. And, and the pattern, the dynamic of that relationship was I kind of was the emotional female and he was kind of the guy telling me that I really shouldn't be that upset. Now, that might have applied well when I was in my 20s, but in my mid-50s, it kind of wasn't really... Working, And he did say to me, Charlie, because that's what a lot of my family members call me. He said, Charlie, you can't get this upset every time somebody dies of cancer. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. And whereas years before, I think I might have either, I don't know, got more emotional or fired up or whatever. My brain just went, he so doesn't get it. Like he so doesn't get it. And I need to find a way, if I'm going to keep relating to him successfully, I need to find a way to help him get it. Now, all of this is happening in, you know, rapid time in my brain. And my training tells me that if you're trying to communicate with someone in a certain mode and it's not working, sometimes it's good to try a different mode. So we were sitting in the lounge room on two couches. He was on one and I was on the other, sort of at 90 degrees to one another. And I thought to myself, I've got to do something different. So I said to him, after he dropped that clangor, I said to him, okay, so I'm going to do something now, just bear with me. Um, And he looked at me. And then I stood up and I lifted up my top and I showed him my chest, which wasn't, you know, a great look, but it was a very clear visual reflection of everything that had happened in the last couple of months. Because of course, I'm otherwise sitting there in my, I don't know what I was wearing, probably like a tracksuit or something, but I'm looking and sounding like me. And so he had no other real information other than me being upset. He had no other real information to go on. And so when I showed him my my wound, if you like, with the dressing and everything. I don't know if anyone's had this experience. You watch a cartoon and and you see the cartoon character sort of shatter, sort of crumble into a pile of rocks on the the floor. Well, that's kind of what his face did when he saw my chest. And in that split second, everything changed. He got it. He got it. He totally got it. And I put my top down and I sat down. So he's still seated on the other couch. So I put my top down and I sit down and a few seconds passed and and he didn't say anything. And then he stood up. Bear in mind, this is my ex-husband, you know, who he's not my husband now. He's, we don't have that sort of relationship anymore. But as a friend, he walked towards me and he put his – and this is not the sort of behaviour that he would normally engage in. But he just put his hands out to my hands and sort of drew me to stand up, and then he just gave me a hug. Not, not, not an not a intimate type of hug, but like a friend hug, which just said, I get it. And after that, the whole conversation shifted, and I didn't feel judged, I didn't feel isolated, I didn't feel alone. I felt like he understood why I was feeling the way I was.
1: Yeah, it's pretty powerful. Was that a spontaneous thing
2: you did? Yeah, totally spontaneous. And I mean, I find it interesting that I had the wherewithal to do it because as I'm saying, as I'm retelling that, like I'm, my heart rate's up and I'm thinking, God, how did I, you know, how did I manage to do that? Because honestly, if you ask me now to lift up my chest, my top and show you my chest, it, you know, I would think about it. Yes. Um, but in the moment, it just felt like the only thing that might work and it did so this is not me suggesting radically to everybody listening <laughs> that you lift up your top and you show other people your chest that's absolutely not what i'm saying but what i am really mindful of is that i was acutely aware of the feeling of being isolated and and feeling so alone not not just in my own cancer treatment, but also in my reaction to my friend's death, which frankly, you know, that's not going to be the last person I know who dies from cancer. And it's got to be okay for me to be upset about that. And it's got to be okay for me to be triggered by that because all of that's normal. That sounds really powerful and
1: fairly heavy, but clearly in that moment, he got it.
2: Yeah, he so got it. And yes, it was very intense. Even as I am thinking about it now, it sort of a little bit takes my breath away. It's a really good reflection of the fact that people take in information through their eyes. So if human beings have got a choice between processing information based on what they're hearing or what they're seeing, they'll always go with what they're seeing. So in that moment, um, he saw and understood so much more. I could have talked to him for a month with my clothes on, and it wouldn't have made nearly so much difference. So this is also really relevant in terms of how we relate to others in our life going through cancer treatment is that if you aren't feeling like you're making headway when you're communicating using your voice, then using a visual representation of some type, not necessarily revealing your chest, but it could be that, or your scar, but also writing things to other people, writing things down, using a different mode of communication can be a really
0: helpful way. Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos, and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment, and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey, download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Okay, so what about Robin, your
1: husband? Was there a feeling of isolation
2: there? Yeah, so this, this was also surprising. And Robin and I have talked about this a lot and he similarly has given me his absolute permission to share this. We've been married for 25 years. We've got a great relationship But and he's a clinical psychologist too. So in the first few days after diagnosis, we had a lot of late night conversations sitting in bed and, and partly that was because that's where it's quiet and there's no distractions and it's also, to be honest, where there wasn't anybody else. So we could be kind of completely um, frank and didn't have to... Um, protect the children. You know, I didn't have to not be distressed um, because I think that's one of the things we often do do is we we filter what we might talk about or how we might how emotional we might get in front of the people that we love. So we were very candid in in these late night conversations. Anyway, quite early in the piece, day two, maybe day three, he said to me, "I just don't want our lives to be all about cancer." Boom or something. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And he says, he says now that as he said those words, as they came out of his mouth, his brain went, that was not a good thing to say. And we absolutely both understand what he was meaning, which was he was having his own big anxiety response to... The diagnosis. He didn't know what was coming. He was very scared about what was coming. He didn't know what it was going to mean for me. He didn't know what it was going to mean for for the family, for um, our life, for our future, for um, things like work. He know he knows what had happened to my parents. On some level, he was pretty scared it was going to happen to me. Um, so he was having his whole own anxiety response. Um, but in that as- moment, when he said, "I don't
1: want," Our life to be all about cancer. Yeah, hindsight is is great, and he he can say now in that moment, what was your response?
2: My overwhelming response was feeling isolated. Um, I think I think he even was a bit surprised that I wasn't cross. I think I was a bit I was a bit surprised. But the thing that I really remember quite almost searingly is that night. I can remember lying in bed awake because I wasn't sleeping much. And I had this really clear thought. When I say it, I don't mean that I was doing a poor me. It was like a revelation that I had this really clear thought, which was ultimately we are all alone. And Rob and I have talked about this since. And he put it beautifully when he said to me, yeah, you're the only one in the MRI machine. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. It's like you can have as much love and support as anyone on the planet, but you're the only one that this actually is happening to. You're the only one who has got something growing inside them or needs to be cut out of them or treated with something like chemo or radiation or hormone or immunotherapy. You're the only one in the MRI machine. And... It was a really, again, isolating experience, just that in, it was very intense. It felt very intense. I mean, I really did feel exactly like I was on a desert island, even though my wonderful husband, who he really is wonderful, he was like lying less than a foot away from me.
1: It sounds like a universal experience then, that feeling of isolation, even in the best relationships, that yeah. no matter how how good it is, at some point, you're likely to feel alone.
2: Yeah. And it, it, it is best summed up by those words like, you know, they just don't get it. And to be fair, how could they get it? And unfortunately, it is it does seem to be one of those experiences where unless you've actually really been through it or something similar, it's a very hard thing to get. Like Rob Rob, I think, gets it as much as another person can get it without having cancer. Long may that be the case. But that's the bit that he doesn't have. He doesn't know what it's like to be in that position. So, yes, it is very much, I think, and certainly from my clinical work is what I see, is that I don't think I've ever, and I don't say those words lightly, I don't think I've ever had a client who at some point hasn't said those words. They just don't get it. What triggers
1: that response? How do all the pieces of the jigsaw come together in the psychological explanation of of why that is? Is it it as simple as, well, unless you've been there, you can't get it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think think ultimately that's a really important point for um, those going through the cancer experience to recognise, which is that if we expect other people to get it, And those other people haven't been through a cancer experience, then ultimately we are on some level setting ourselves up for disappointment because we are expecting something of those others that they simply do not have the capacity. So even if they can get it to a point, there's always going to be a missing part, a limitation if you like. So part of it is incumbent on the person who's going through the cancer experience to kind of understand what's a reasonable expectation of, of my loved ones and are there other people out there? Are there other people that I can connect with, that I can get that particular emotional need met? And it, and so that's about understanding how important empathy is. And actually, and that's what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to understand another person's experience. And so if we're feeling emotionally isolated and we've got loved ones around us, it's about going, okay, maybe... Maybe instead of trying to get something out of those loved ones that they just simply are unable to provide because they don't have the same lived experience, maybe it's about recognising that they can be so valuable in lots of ways, but that empathy might need to be extracted or enjoyed in other relationships. So you really
1: have to seek your people out, so to speak, don't you? I know yeah. with BCNA, yeah. we have the online network, which is a peer-to-peer support group. And so often we hear, they just get it because yeah. someone has either gone through something similar, is going through something similar. And it's that pool of,
2: of knowledge of people yeah. who know what you're going through. That's right. And what it, what it brings with it is, is absolutely that feeling of like people who get it, but it also, it it is reflected in um, a real ease in relating to people. So there's almost like a shorthand. You you don't have to educate people. You don't have to explain. You, it, it's almost like a wink and a nod. You can start a sentence and you can see or feel from those people who empathise with your position that they know exactly what you're talking about. Whereas with people who haven't been through the experience, you're often feeling like you almost have to have to persuade them or educate them and that can feel really invalidating and isolating in itself. It can sound exhausting too if you're the one way- with exhausting.
1: breast cancer and Correct. yet you're trying to educate others as to what you're going through and yet you're the one that needs support. You could could you possibly get a bit angry, start keeping a bit of, you know, scorekeeping for those that don't get it?
2: Yeah, you can get angry and and most of all and this is what I see a lot of um people withdraw. So and and certainly that's the challenge um is is to stay connected to the people that matter to you but um I have have seen so often there's like a little cycle that can happen which is where when you feel vulnerable and you feel like you need emotional support, your brain goes looking for it. Even if you don't realise that's what's going on, your brain goes looking for that emotional support. And if it doesn't find the emotional support or if it feels disappointed in that lack of emotional support, instead of keeping going, it tends to then go, oh, I'm hurt, I'm disappointed, and then I'm not going to share with you anymore because I'm not going... And it's it's that feeling of like avoiding the thing that makes me feel uncomfortable so I'm going to stay away from that hurt and that disappointment which means I'm not going to keep sharing anymore and so then what happens is the person who really needs the support is busy going no I'm not going to share anymore because I don't want to get hurt and disappointed anymore and where does that leave them even more isolated and alone than they already were. So it becomes this kind of like reinforcing cycle and, and that's really sometimes hard to break and that's again where having that kind of empathy, finding your tribe, going where you feel understood is so important because if you keep going back to the well and it's dry, after a while you don't go back to the well. Where does that leave though the people who may not understand
1: probably the people who love you and who are part of your everyday. Where does that leave them, though, as far as being able to support you? I mean, if they haven't been through a cancer diagnosis or something similar, it's not exactly their fault. Um, no. And they, what if they desperately want to get it? What can, what can they do? I mean, sometimes what they say, perhaps... Rob, when he said, "I don't want our life to be all about cancer," or someone saying, "You'll be right. You'll be back in no time," that's probably not what they mean. But are they just are they self protecting themselves? Are they just trying to look on the bright side? Is that counterproductive?
2: Um, it's really common for loved ones to um, wade into what I call positive pressure territory, which is that real um, look on the bright side, cup half full. You know, it'll be, it'll be fine. I just know you're going to be okay. Um, which is me- it's coming from a place of love and support, but can feel really invalidating. It can make the person who's going through the cancer experience feel very, very isolated and alone. Um, the The ability to listen and to validate and to not assume to not to not assume that you know what the other person needs to actually ask like you know what, what do you need what how can i help tell me how you're feeling don't try and fix it don't dismiss it don't minimize it don't bat it away with a positive statement try and be really just present and sit with the person in their distress that's really easy to say and it's not not easy to do um we get, as human beings, we get caught up on um, the interpersonal interaction, so the thing that happens in front of you. So if somebody says something, that's often what the what we respond to. Sometimes, as the person who's going through the cancer experience, it can be really helpful to look behind the interaction and look to what the intent was and go. And there's a big difference between intent and delivery. So as humans, we get stuck on the delivery. So often the de- the intent is good but the delivery is clumsy and we go, oh, my God, they said that so wrong, they got it so wrong, I feel so isolated and alone. But if we look behind the delivery and go, okay, what was going on there? What do, what do I think they were trying to do? Like what Rob was trying to do, he was trying to share with me his anxiety about what had happened and what was going to happen to us but the language that he used didn't communicate that well. Now, once I was able to understand that, I was able to let go of some of my feelings of isolation and go, actually, do you know what? He is in this with me. His experience is not my experience, but we are in this together. Right. And so it is about looking beyond the delivery to the intent. So his his delivery of, I
1: don't want our life to be all about cancer, his intent was, I'm really scared and yes. not sure How what gonna it's going to do this? to our lives. Yeah, yeah
2: absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's a very noble rear view mirror on your behalf. I would imagine that most people would go, whack, that's just got me straight in the heart. And how could you say that you're my person and yet all of a sudden now I have to comfort you for saying something really stupid
2: and yet I'm the one that's hurt? Absolutely. And, and that definitely, um, you know, that, that sort of feeling of anger and feeling like, you know, how could you have got this so wrong? And, of course, anger then sets up a, 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 an even bigger divide. So, um, again, easy to say, sure, don't get angry, but a really normal, natural response. Some of this goes to the quality of the relationship as it stood pre-diagnosis. So if you've got the sort of relationship where you are used to, working through conversations and unpacking things. And, you know, two clinical psychologists, I guess you'd like to think that maybe we have some skills in that area, although not all the time. Um, Not at 3am in the morning. Not at 3am in the morning. But, of course, not everybody does. And and not everybody has the sort of supportive relationship. You know, people can be holding on to, you know, expectations and um, past... Poor behaviour or wounds, and that can absolutely bleed into how they relate to one another in the process of dealing with cancer diagnosis and treatment. Okay, so
1: we've talked about finding your tribe, go where you're understood, and for people caring for someone with breast cancer or any sort of life threatening illness, you know, to have empathy. What are some of the things? You could do if you've got something embedded in your memory about something that someone said, or where you feel let down, is it helpful to go back and process some of the things that others have said that have possibly made you feel isolated, angry,
2: disappointed? I think the answer to that is sometimes. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. There are going to be times where it's going to be more useful to, if you like, draw a mental line in the sand and, and recognise the limitations of the situation and of the person involved um, and understand that maybe going back and reopening what to what to the person going through cancer can feel like um, a really current wound but to the other person involved m- might not even register in their memory bank. So you, the risk is you go back and sort of go, you know, now remember that conversation that we had six months ago and you said this and I said this and this is how you made me feel and the other person might be looking at you like, What are you even talking about? I have no memory of that whatsoever because of course We lay down memory traces based on what's salient. Salient's just sexy language for um, what's important. So if you're the person going through the cancer experience, pretty much everything that people say to you around the cancer experience is going to be important. You're going to remember it. But if you're on the other side of the fence and you're just trying to be supportive and um, relate to your friend or your family member, there's a pretty good chance you won't remember those conversations or you certainly won't remember them the same way. So the risk is that you go back and you try and unpack this conversation and you end up just creating more of a mess because your memory and their memory of it are either not the same or not even in existence. So I would be really cautious around sort of a unilateral yes, go back and unpack it. I think if there are really important loved ones where the behaviour, the delivery has left a scar, if you like, and if that scar is getting in the way of kind of moving on together or moving on successfully through the cancer experience, then I think talking about it, maybe not referencing a specific interaction or a specific event in too much detail, because, again, um, there's this whole group of study called Eyewitness Testimony, which is basically if you get 10 people to see the same car accident, you'll get 10 different versions of the same car accident. So yet two people and talk about a conversation, you're almost never going to get the same recollection of that conversation. So I'm always a bit cautious about saying, yeah, sure, go back and unpack that. But if you go back to your loved one and say, do you know what? I've been thinking about something. I've been reflecting on something and I feel, and you actually nominate the feeling and feelings are quite easy to identify because they're all one word. So I feel disappointed. I feel isolated. I feel alone. And you actually nominate how you feel. That can often be quite important, including in your loved one, to understand the effect of their behaviour. So even if you don't unpack the he said she said or you know we were there when this happened, even if you don't bother with that, if they understand that their behaviour has had an impact where you feel a certain thing, then that can give them a way in to then go okay well how do we how do we resolve this? What will help? How do we move forward with this? If you are feeling emotionally
1: isolated and you don't have the courage, for want of a better word to express those feelings of like I'm I'm alone here I feel I'm going through this by myself is there anything else that you can do to maybe ease that
2: I think that reaching out to other people in similar situations is a really good idea and that's where things like BCNA can be so important I think that talking to trusted others, and that might be someone like me, like a therapist, where you can actually go to a safe space and be vulnerable with someone who, if you like, has got no skin in the game. So you're not having to worry about the impact of your own emotional response on that other person. And the other thing that can be helpful is to write this stuff down and to actually express it because when we talk about it, whether we talk about it with a loved one or a therapist or someone in a peer-to-peer support network, when we talk about it, in order to actually talk and use our use our voice. We have to have figured out the thoughts. And it's the same process when you write things down. You're just using your hand to write instead of your voice to speak. But you have to have articulated the thoughts first. And so writing things down can be a really therapeutic way of being able to express some of the emotional responses that are going on. So it's a way of getting it out. It's a download. Exactly. It's a download. It's And you can, you can do it on a computer, you can do it on a scrap of paper, you can do it in your phone. Generally speaking, I like to recommend that people actually do it with a pen and paper because there is a um, qualitatively different experience of of, of that um, process of writing. But nevertheless, even if you – and I've done quite a bit of this myself – I wrote a lot on a computer and it's incredibly therapeutic. And if you never read it again, that doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's about actually getting it out of your head and – expressed in some form. So when it
1: comes out of your head onto the piece of paper, what actually is
2: that apart from a download? Like does something actually happen in the mind? It's an acknowledgement. It turns it into something that's just kind of like a, a nebulous floating bit of thought and it turns it into an actual captured tangible piece of information an event a feeling a thought and so it can make us feel like we're legitimizing our experience so it's definitely better out than in definitely better out than in like cancer
1: dr charlotte another insightful episode. And if this episode has helped you or may help someone you know, you can support the show in the following ways to allow us to continue to be upfront with you and reach more people through meaningful content. So subscribe to ensure you never miss an episode, download so you always have an episode ready to listen to, leave a rating and review and tell us what you liked and complete the survey that you'll find in the show notes. A reminder that BCNA's My Journey has a range of resources related to breast cancer, so sign up and visit myjourney.org.au. And as we mentioned, BCNA's online network is also an online peer-to-peer support community where you can connect with others going through a similar experience. To join, visit the BCNA website. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the
2: showing up and the letting down. I think it's interesting to just note that the flocking doesn't last, it's often a fairly temporary phenomenon and it happens after diagnosis and there's a whole bunch of reasons why people flock to the action, if you like. Some of it's about social expectation. There is certainly within, you know, social networks, there is often a real pressure, if you like. You know, have you sent something? Have you seen them? Have you talked to her? You know, that sort of thing to kind of um, legitimise or validate your position in that person's life. Some of it's, this will sound a bit weird, some of it's social competition. You know, who did more? I took one casserole. Oh. I took two. I sent flowers. I sent flowers. I sent flowers, yeah. I went to the hospital. Our theme music for this series
1: is by the late Tara Simmons, who lost her life to breast cancer. We're very grateful to her family for allowing us to use her music. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for
0: being up front with us. Thanks for listening to Upfront About Breast Cancer. What you don't know until you do. With Dr Charlotte Todman, brought to you by the Breast Cancer Network Australia and proudly supported by JT Reed.